Sagittarian Matters, Ponyo and I travel to the Queers and Comics Conference in San Francisco to talk history, feminism, aging, and love with Mary Wings and Roberta Gregory. Stay tuned. Hello from the road. I come to you today from an artist residency on the Washington coast, which I'll tell you about next week. But Ponyo and I just got back from the Queers and Comics Conference, where we were both on panels about women's autobiographical comics and promoting your work. Today I have two interviews for you. The first is with Mary Wings. Mary Wings is the artist behind the landmark Come Out Comics and Dyke Shorts a, quote, mostly autobiographical comic that conveys the life of an American lesbian in the 1970s. She left comics in the 1980s and became a famous author of mystery novels. Well, now Mary is back to comics and working on a book called Old, because, as she says, she doesn't see the topic of women and aging represented anywhere. I am very proud to present my talk with Mary Wings. Mary Wings. Welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Thank you. That's the name of my podcast. We're looking at your sketchbook, which has a drawing of a young woman on one side and an old woman on the other side. Indeed, and all her teeth are falling out because uh, as you get older, parts deteriorate and leave your body. But I want to say about the cover, Mm -hmm. here she is old, and she's saying you should be so lucky. In other cultures and past times, old people were not just revered because they were wise and they held history, but also because they were just freaking lucky. They managed to make it that far, and if you could be close to them or touch them, maybe some of it would rub off. I never thought of it that way. I like that. Many people have thought of it that way for many years in cultures, but it kind of got lost here. The seniors I know all feel very lucky for getting to the ages they got. Like people who are in their 80s are like, wow, I never knew I'd make it this far. Exactly, exactly. But part of what they're saying is, oh my God, I didn't think we'd get this old. Meaning there's stuff you have to deal with, stuff you have to take care of, uh, and your time gets very short during the day. Between whatever physical infirmities you have or not, time just seems to kind of speed by. And there's a couple myths that I want to talk about about being old. People think that old means sick and sad. In fact, statistically, if you look at all age groups, there are people who are sick their entire lives. We all know people who, in all ages before young, also have gotten very, very ill. So, in fact, although parts will wear out, it does not mean that you're sick. And some people, I know someone who's 97, and kind of nothing has gone wrong with her. Nothing big. So that's another way to look at it, too. Yeah. And sad. Now, we all know, we have seen all seen some pretty sad people in their young years who've had a really, really hard time. A lot of that stuff gets figured out when you're older. Yeah. And you don't have the burden of an entire life to create. Get in your bag. Excuse me. That was perfect, though. That was perfect. Get in there. If you want to talk about young, young people being upset, Ponyo just barked at him. I almost barked brought my dog because you brought your, your you dog. You did? Um, well, yeah, I, the, most of the people I know who are older, are, they have a little bit of serenity or peace around things that used to bug them 
they've kind of worked it out or put it in perspective in a different way. I am going to make the kind of basic thrust of the book that you have more of a door to daily pleasures, and especially um, arts, music, painting. There's some way in which it speaks to you, I think, in a deeper way. I can only know because I'm in the old brain I'm in. But what's going to happen to our character is she has two friends in their 80s, and they kind of turn her on to classical music. Mm -hmm. And suddenly she becomes completely enamored and it's like a book. It opens up, and it's incredibly complex to listen to. And perhaps I wasn't just—I wasn't ready to hear all that until I got old. Mm-hmm. What can you describe this book, and like how long it's going to be? Will it be fully illustrated? It's going to be fully illustrated, and it's—it's—it both has the narrative of my friendship with with Leonard. And what happens when we go to the ballet and around classical dancing. But then in between, I have some sociological um, facts about being old. We in America have a very odd sense of old because in many cases, people just moved west. So we've never had three generations in one household, especially the grandparents could live you know, nearby, but they'd still be 200 miles away. So for the most part, we haven't had the benefit of being around old people when we're young. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be changing, maybe due to the housing crisis. But in any event, I think we're all going to be living together and rubbing elbows more. Mm. I hope so. I can only <laughs> hope so. Uh, we hope, we're glad you say that. I'm not sure everyone feels the same way. Oh, my God. I mean, I, if you had to say, would you like to go hang on a room full of 70-year-old people or a room full of 22-year-olds, the answer would be quite clear to me. Here's, here's an interesting um, uh, thing that I read. So they uh, hooked a brain scan up to a 16-year-old person who walked into a neighborhood cafe and knew a lot of you know people and had grown up there, and they measured her brain scans. And, you know, she saw people, her face registered recognition, and she had all these thoughts. They put an 80-year-old woman with the brain scan on, and she knew so much about each person that immediately you could tell that her brain was just retaining a lot more information and was much more active in figuring out. Mm. So, in fact, it might not be that we're forgetful. We just have mental loading, which Mm. just means you know a fuck of a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wait, we we skipped ahead because I want to say... I met you because you were part of women's comics, and you actually, you made some of the first lesbian comics I in America. I was actually not, not a part of women's comics. I was kind of on my own up there in Portland, Oregon, and when I saw Trina's comic called um, Sandy Comes Out, I thought that it was very superficial, and I felt that it needed a lot more in-depth treatment, so that brought me to that Stage, And then I made several other comic books, Dyke Shorts, Are Your Highs Getting You Down, which just kind of postulated a lesbian culture which wasn't there yet. Did you also um, contribute to Tits and Glitz? No. Oh, no. Just Dyke Shorts. I must have read your stuff in. It was kind of a concomitant thing, and uh, I think that was the San Francisco group that reached out to other feminists, and I was just kind of on my own with a big burgeoning lesbian feminist movement up in Portland, Oregon. Okay, so I've lived in Portland for the past 17 years. What was the lesbian world like in Portland in the 70s? Well, first of all, you were scared because you were dyke. You were just scared. And also, just not wearing any female signifiers was seen as being really freaky. If people couldn't tell what gender you were, they were mad. 
Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of street harassment. Um, definitely there was the sense that your ghetto was where you needed to be because you were in too much danger otherwise. So it was very, very tightly knit circle because of that. And that's changed a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, I moved there in the year 2000. In the mid-90s, the band Team Drush, which was a lesbian band in Portland, got beat up outside of one of their gigs in Portland because they were lesbians. I mean, they got gay bashed just for that. So it's, it's hard because right now people that are coming out, it's, it's fairly simple comparatively, and they don't understand that the same places we go or um, outness that we have was not, not a safe thing. Yes, and I've heard also from people who've uh, talked to high school students that, in fact, if you were in the closet in high school, because you had to be, you might have been a little safer than now everyone comes out and declares their sexual preference or identity, and that leads them to being um, bullied more quickly. I'm not saying people shouldn't come out, but it's a different... uh, it's it's a different opportunity for harassers is what it is. Yeah. You know, and yeah. reactionary pushback. So you made a bunch of lesbian comics. Uh, I should clarify for listeners that the re- one of the reasons or one of the things is that Trina was straight and drew one of the first printed lesbian comics, Sandy Comes Out, which was about her roommate coming out as a lesbian. So then you, as an actual lesbian had some pushback for her. And that's how you got in touch. And now I met you because you're on a bunch of panels together. Um, about 70s women's comics and original original women's comics and feminist comics in America. Trina is a great buddy, and we have traveled a long way. When we first met each other, we just went, oh, my God, it's my enemy at last, and we hugged each other. Oh. Um, <laughs> Trina's comic book was looking from the outside in. It was kind of her observation of Sandy in very beautiful drawings, stunningly beautiful drawings. But I felt that coming out was this huge, painful step, and a wonderful step. But it was self-examination. It was discovering yourself. It was realizing you didn't know that you didn't know yourself. It was a very complex, multi-layered thing individually, and that's even before we get to socially, because at that time, I pretty much sunk any teaching career I might have had by coming out. So, Is that true? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was illegal to, uh, to be gay and to be a teacher. So... Um, I I was scared to do it, but I did it anyway. And it's interesting, we were talking on a panel. We might be the last generation to be closeted. I mean, I'm sure there's people in the closet, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. We're the last people that felt like the closet needed, door need, had to be opened. Wow. I mean, I, I'm a teacher, and I still have that kind of weird internalized homophobia about being around kids or not wanting to push my agenda or not wanting their parents to find out that a, a lesbian or a queer person is... In the classroom. And but I think, you, I think, first of all, you just have to let that go. Yeah. And fabulously enough, times are much changed. There's a young woman student here who says she has four Republican parents. It's kind of a great That's title. So funny. Four Republican parents. They all think it's great that she's gay. Yeah. So, you know, it's just uh, my mother shook and cried and managed to say, don't tell your father before she disappeared. And, you know, some times have changed so radically. And it's wonderful that no one has to go through these struggles. Yeah. Most most people. Yeah. Yeah. So you made comics for a while and then you stopped and started primarily writing and writing mysteries. Did you draw at the same time or did you just throw down the pen? I found out that when I was writing comic books, the story was getting ahead of the words. 
So I just wanted to get the stories down and not be bogged down by all the drawing. And I was living in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and I had no language. I was in a second language environment all the time, and so I kind of didn't have a personality in a way. And I was on an airplane going back and forth to see my parents who were ill to the States, and there were a lot of detective books that were just about, you know, men screwing women and whatever. So I wanted to do a book about women screwing women for women on the airplane. I just, I really did it for my friends. I didn't mean to publish. I never meant to publish Come Out Comics, except I wanted to print it up and get it in people's bathrooms. So it was a similar sort of genre effort, and it was really about it's not here. That's the way I feel about old, is that, you know, we don't have a good comic about old. Hey, I'm thinking about doing old paper dolls. Please. <laughs> Please. If you made, I mean, if you ever needed to do fundraising for old, and you, A, needed help sharing it, of course come to me and any of my listeners, because uh, I'm sure that they would love to support it or pre-order it. But, B, if you made paper dolls just for fun or even as, like, an incentive for people, that would be so awesome. This is great, and you, you've just so inspired me with your enthusiasm, and I just saw Lee Mars, who had the most beautiful pill case. So think of all the accessories, oh the games, the pill cases. And that stuff is so cheap to make. I mean, truly, it's made in China, whatever, whatever, but, like, pill case, like, I've used those, I mean, even just for my dog or just for my vitamins or whatever. If you had, like, a personalized pill case for this... But the thing is, Lee Mars can swallow pills without water. What? I know. So these things... She's like a bear or something. Who can do that? I know, exactly. I know. But wait, you swallowed those pills without water. So would you, you've given writing tips to my students before, and you gave some writing tips yesterday on your panel. Um, will you explain your four or four, like, getting dropped off across town? Writing yeah. technique? Okay, so what I did before when I had the novel, and you have to produce a 300-page manuscript, and you can't do it overnight, so there's no cheating. And I had a partner drive me off, drop me off at the beginning of the day at a cafe that was very far from my house. And I've heard this before. You can only write, write four pages. Basically, if you can write four good pages, you're done for the day. Don't push yourself. So I would stay there, and you have to stay there for either four hours or until you've written four pages. It just means you write the four pages really fast because you want to go home. And then you get to call them, like, on a pay phone and be like, okay, I'm done. Come get me. Actually, then I go home on the bus, and then I just rethink, and, and in the afternoon I do research and editing. But another important thing is never write yourself out. Leave things for the next day. You know what? You said that at a panel, or you said that you come to my class every year in the summer. You came and told us that, that you always left something interesting, like on your drawing board or on your desk. You left something that you wanted to come back to, and I started doing that after you said that, and it makes me so happy. Leave one thing that you're super excited to return to the next day so you're not dreading. It's hard. You have to really work with yourself, and you have to find lots of little tricks, and there are little tricks that really, really help you to do that. Another thing is, is... If you ever do write a first book and you publish it, write a second one before the first one's published. Oh. You'll never get second book freeze. Yes. Because first books have all the great stuff you ever wanted to write. Second books are always paler. They feel paler when you write them. But if you have a success in the first book, you'll be terrified to write the second. If you don't have a success, you'll never do it again, or if you have bad reviews. So this way, you have insurance. That's really smart. I'm having current terror because my second major book is coming out, and I'm like, you know. Write the third one now. 
I should. I have it in my head already. I'm. I need to write it. So if everybody hates this book, this other one will still happen no matter what. It's insurance. And also, luckily for me, it's a compulsion. So I feel like even if I'm like, this is terrible, nobody likes it, I still will have to write it, even exactly. if nobody likes it. Exactly. I've told so many people I'm doing this uh, this book, and two years ago I announced it on a panel, and everyone laughed and clapped. So stuck with it i gotta do it now you got and now my listeners and i will be harassing you on some level to do it oh, harass me please no problem but uh, so i you you took a long break from making comics so i don't know if you actually have drawing injuries but how does your body hold up drawing now because i know for me you know as, as i get older and have drawn for a long time i can draw for shorter and shorter amounts of time um i'm i have to retrain myself because i haven't done this in about 30 years and i'm I'm kind of in that real newbie stage that I'm just looking at everybody as if I was about 15 years old, and that's a wonderful thing. I don't know how hard it'll be. I don't think that age impairs the brush stroke. Um, even though there's arthritis issues, I'm looking at inkers, I'm watching them work, and even if their hands shake, the minute they get that brush in their hand, it's steady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. That's nice to know. I wanted, I'm trying to think about what else I wanted to ask you. I wanted to ask you some of the things you were talking about on the panel were, I don't know if they were, you had a hot tip about wearing skirts. <laughs> you all, but before we get to that, you talked about some of the downfalls of aging, including like dropping things all the time. Things I dropped today. Uh, things just drop. Uh, either your eyesight is you know, impaired, so you just knock things over. You, if you're in any kind of hurry, you reach for things, and they just appear to fall down. So it's sort of like objects have a life of their own. And a little Ross chaff sort of feeling that mm-hmm. you know, things come alive. And will you explain your skirt tip? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So... <clears throat> I talked to another woman about this, Karen Green, who was a panel moderator. So we off, everyone says, well, you can't be a lesbian. You're wearing a skirt. Thank you very much. What do they know? But um, if you have urgency incontinence, that is, you're on the bus and you can hold it for hours, but when you come to your door and you put the key in the lock, you lose it. Just put a large planter next to your door, hike up that skirt, and sit down and do what has to be done, and no one's going to notice. They won't even notice the little puddle at your feet. <laughs> and you have done this how many times? Three. And, and talk to the neighbors. While you were talking to the neighbors? It doesn't occur to them to look to see if there's a puddle at your feet. They're like, oh, that nice lady is sitting on the planter just having a conversation. Oh, no, I know them all. Oh. So we chat. Hey, Mary, how's it going? And you're like... I'm just great. Oh, it's a wonderful day. Just got home. That's a beautiful skirt you're wearing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> they don't go that far. Oh, they don't go that far. No, they're, they're carrying their own groceries and all that kind of stuff. Um, if you had to make a request of people of all ages who are making comics of how they portray older people or old people, do you have any requests for how you would like to see old people portrayed in the media? I would never request anything. I think everyone has to do what they need to do. We, we know about all the... You know, sweet little old lady jokes and all that kind of stuff, whatever those jokes are. But I think that things are really changing. I mean, as we know, old is no longer old. There's 50, 60, 70, 80, and 90. So those are very different stages in life. We're all living a lot longer than we thought. We're all living our grandparents. So that gives a different sense of time. And I'm also so inspired at this comic book panel that, that because 
the fantasies in this particular group seems to be very much about bodies and how we uh, see ourselves and exhibit ourselves. And so many of the people have fish heads or octopus heads. or It's just wonderful, and I think that also relieves aging. It just takes us out of that, an old person is this, mm-hmm. because we're looking at everybody in all kinds of new ways. Mm-hmm. Do you have any tips for young cartoonists or up-and-coming cartoonists? Or is there anything you learned the hard way that you wish someone had told you? I'm not that much of a... I've never been a professional cartoonist. I just did a few things, so it's a little hard for me to give that advice. But I say for everyone, just trust your instincts. Yeah. Always. Well, Mary Wings, thank you for being on the podcast. What's your sign? Aries. Oh, you're an Aries. Welcome. Aries are very welcome on Sagittarian Matters. We like that, Sagittarius. Thank you. No problem. Roberta Gregory began her career in 1974 as a contributor to the now-famous women's comics. She is now best known for her long-running series, Naughty Bits, published by Fanagraphics. I caught up with her while she was lounging with her feet up on a nice chaise lounge at California College of the Arts in between workshops at the Queers and Comics Fest. I'm pleased to present my talk with Roberta Gregory. Roberta Gregory, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. I saw you over here sitting on this lounge, lounging with your shoes off here at CCA at the Queers and Comics Conference. How often do you get to lounge on a full-length sofa with your shoes off and twiddling your toes at a convention? Usually there's no place to even sit down unless you drop $400 for a table. I am kind of eyeballing these for a nap later. (laughs) Me Me too, actually. I came here with a cold that turned into a worse cold. But if it was anything but Queers and... The Queers and Comics Conference, I wouldn't be here, but I am determined to stay to the bitter end because this is like the most wonderful conference I have ever been to. I love this conference. Will you please tell my listeners who you are in comics? What do you do? Who am I in comics? Okay, well, I've been doing comics for a long, long time. Um, I drew comics as a kid, and um, which a lot of people do, and a bunch of stuff that had queer themes in them, which was very rare. This was like the late 60s, and it wasn't even talked about, and I'd kind of sneak these themes into my comics and then never show them to anybody because people didn't want to know about horrible things like queer people back in the 60s. And um, But then later on, we had women's liberation and gay liberation in the early 70s, so I started doing comics about things that I thought were really cool, which was like the women's movement... Um, I had a little cartoon character, Frida the Feminist, who was very idealistic, but she kept running into reality and being thwarted, but she's still a very idealistic person. That became my comic, Dynamite Damsels, that I published back in 1976. Wow. And then, you were part of women's comics? Oh, yeah. That whole scene? Yeah, I uh, contributed a few stories to women's comics. It was actually really exciting because back then there weren't, you didn't really see comics that were done by women. I mean, I was reading Archie and some superhero comics and uh, everything was done by men. So I just figured I'd never, ever have any of my comics published because women didn't get their comics published. And then in 
like the early 1970s, I went to a head shop, which is a shop where they would sell like marijuana paraphernalia and so forth. And they were like comic books, and a lot of them were by women. There was women's comics. There was um, Lynn Chevley and Joyce Farmer, who were two women in Southern California, had a, their own little publishing company that cranked out cute, rude comics about women's sexuality and so forth. And I was so inspired because the women all had different styles of drawing and they're all telling different kinds of stories and their art didn't all look like everybody else's, which is what the men's comics looked like at the time. So I drew a really bad story and set it in and they published it and that haven't looked back since. That's great. Was it was it hard to be a woman cartoonist then? I mean, I'm just thinking about at least the Bay Area being, you know, very into like our crumb and, you know, images then very literally being women being used as like blowjob machines, you know, or beheaded or what have you. And that being the popular indie comics of the day and then coming out with like not only not that, but like comics about feminists or lesbians seems wild. Actually, it was it was really good because we had sisterhood back then. Like women kind of stuck together, and women's comics was like a collective, and they were really open to other women sending in comics. It was actually very became very competitive. Um, I'd only get like maybe a couple of pages every other issue or so, so I had to do pretty short stories. But I was in college at the time, so I didn't have that much time. But I got inspired to, like I say do a whole comic book based on some of the themes that were in some of my early comics but um, I didn't really see it as difficult because we had people that we could lean on and people we could get advice from and uh, anthologies that wanted us to send our stories in so I I didn't really see it as being difficult. It was very exciting. It was like something new which I mean, there's not a whole lot now that seems really that new. It's, I mean, I hate to sound like some old bitch saying, you know, in my day, if you were back in when I was young, it was, you know, it was so different, and we were all, you know, anyway, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go there, but it, w- it was just a different time. I mean, women, women that didn't want to get married and have children, or there was, like, something wrong with them, being gay was until the mid-70s, it was a psychiatric mental illness. And now, you know, it's like, you're gay, so what? You know, get over it and get a life, you know? I mean, you know, like, don't let it bother you. It's their life. It's not your business. Yeah, you were mentioning that at the panel the other day. Mm-hmm. The idea that that, you know, so then when people now are saying that about trans people, you're exactly. like, well, just look at the history. Like, a lot of people that aren't just living the heteronormative, mm-hmm. gender-normative life, Maybe there's nothing wrong with them, but maybe everyone else needs to get up to speed. Exactly. That's exactly. Um, it takes time. I mean, it's a big concept for some people to wrap their little tiny brains around. When you have a tiny brain, it doesn't stretch very far. What was your comic life like in the 90s? In the 90s, um, I had my own comic book, uh, Naughty Bits. It was published by Fanagraphics. Um, I It was like 40 issues of my bitchy bitch character, who was like lots of fun. It was like... Uh, kind of a middle-aged woman. I was middle-aged by then, and she dealt with, you know, she wasn't happy with her life. She was very kind of critical and bitter, but she wasn't insightful enough to have, you know, have an idea about how to make her life better. And um, 
But, I mean, she wasn't a completely bad person. Sometimes she'd try to do the right thing, but then her personal weaknesses would kind of catch up with her. And she was drawn in this really... I drew her in this, like, really funny, cartoony, rubbery way. I mean, her boobs go all over the place. She'd have her period at inopportune times. And I was drawing her having really interesting sexual <laughs> sexual escapades. Um, but it was just lots of fun. It was ran for 40 issues. I got to run other people's stories in it, which I thought was I thought was really awesome. I mean, there's people this conference that thanked me for, you know, first running some of their comics in naughty bits and um, it was a really really great time. I love that. Did you go to a lot of conventions then? I did actually because I was kind of I was kind of making a living well I mean I was living on probably about six thousand dollars a year and I was just about getting by on some of the production work I did at Fantagraphics and the money that would come in from cranking out about three issues a year of naughty bits and um, it was translated into a couple of languages and I got sent to conventions in Germany of all places and it was uh, Sweden let's see I got no Finland that's right I got sent to Finland and um, I'd go to San Diego comic convention before it got all big and impossible and um, it was it was a lot of fun it was I kind of had no life but comics back then but it was kind of the heyday of the indie comic oh, yeah, I forget I think I think that I wrote down a note the other day I saw you at a panel and I feel like you you may have said something about you know, breaking up with people, but it was okay because I meant you got to draw more comics. Or maybe, like, friends oh. falling away, but you got to... Oh, I think I I'd said that um, my happiest times were when I wasn't in relationships and I was drawing comics. You don't hear that a lot. I really appreciate that perspective because it's very hard to balance. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, like I said, I haven't... I haven't been very... I mean, I've had relation, been in different relationships with people, but I just... I don't know. I mean, it just... I seem to be happier when, you know, I have friends and people I can hang out with and can follow my creative energy. I, f- I forgot to ask Mary this. I used to ask people on my podcast all the time, but I forgot. What do you think it's like to date a cartoonist? Well, to date a cartoonist, I mean, you need to be very understanding because they're going to have to have a lot of time to crank out pages, and a lot of it is alone time because you really have to focus. I mean, if you're drawing page after page and you have to have the art consistent, the lettering all has to look like it wasn't done on six different days. I mean, it takes a lot of focus. And uh, Oh, I think, I, uh, as a matter of fact, I was in a relationship with a woman who literally said, you know, like, you love your comics more than I do, and yeah, so... <laughs> I said, that's right, and she became an ex. So, yeah, people pull, pull, pull stuff like that. and Or at least in my experience, people pull stuff like that, which is probably why I'm sometimes happier when I'm by myself. One of my friends, um, famously, as he was breaking up with this girl, she said as she was walking out the door, your comics will never love you back, you know. And so then he... They say famously because then he made a comic called Your Comics Will Love You Back. <laughs> and he ended up wearing um, a symbolic wedding ring to comics. Mm-hmm. Like be, he was wedded to comics because he was right. like, this is my primary relationship is comics. So mm-hmm. he, you know, got married later. AK, do you want to sit in and listen to our podcast interview? AK Summers oh, just, just walking by. She's still pregnant, so we're trying to give her a place to sit. Yep. Um, 
pregnant, but just kidding, she's not pregnant anymore. Oh. Um, but we, we went on a little bit of a book tour. We kept getting booked together, and people would be surprised that she wasn't actively pregnant. Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's like that damn giraffe that's in the, you know, that they had the cam on for, like, months, you know, that was, she finally had her baby, I think, a couple of days ago. Oh, my God. I know, yeah, that poor giraffe they had in that little tiny pen for, like, you know, forever. I mean, poor thing. I mean, if, if you had to, like, stay in a little crate for, you know, <laughs> however long, it'd be very hard to have a normal pregnancy. you got to be out there, you know. Yeah, stretching your legs. Yeah. A.K. Summers, what do you think it's like to date a cartoonist? Oh, she's she's unwrapping a sandwich. Yeah. She's thinking about it. Yeah. I think that people need to not take it personally, the amount of time that you need to spend with your mm-hmm. comics. Yeah, and... Um, like another thing would, you know, once your cartoonist um, squeeze is getting to a stopping point, take her somewhere. Take her out and say, hey, let's go to a movie. I'm going to spend some money. going to buy you dinner. I mean, just take her away from the drawing table when you, if you love her enough, you'll sense when she has to kind of get away and, you know, breathe some fresh air and focus on something closer than like a foot and a half from her face for 12 hours. That's very kind advice. I think so. I wish. I mean, I don't think I've ever had any. <laughs> I've never had anybody that treated me that way. But oh, God. If, if, I had, if, I had a, if I had a cartoonist, sweetie, I'd be that way. Oh, I wish that for you now. Thank you. Thank you. AK, what do you think it's like to date a cartoonist? Hell, you're always having to pay for them. <laughs> They're always sneaking out when the check comes around. They're poor. They're poor work. They're workaholics, but they're impoverished. Sex is unbelievably hot. <laughs> Why we say that again? <laughs> Sex is unbelievably hot. With literally every cartoonist. Yes. <laughs> Not me. Uh, Not me. No, I think if, if they had an asexual category back then, I probably would have like you know joined the team and said no, I'd rather draw comics. But back then, you had to be either gay or straight, you know, and so. Yeah. I didn't want to be straight, so I was gay. But now I'm. I'm. I, I'd, I'd like to find a few more categories for myself, actually. Yeah. May I ask you, Roberta? Do you have advice for young cartoonists, or something that you wish, things you wish you would have known that you had to learn the hard way? Well, um, let's see. The advice I would give to young cartoonists is: um, if you, if there's a certain type of genre that you like, pursue it. But if, you know. It's something that only you could do. I think that's even better because um, you're going to put a lot of energy into drawing comics and a graphic novel project, and it's got to be something you love. It's got to be something you want to stare at every day for, like, several months. So make sure it's something that you really love to draw. I think that's really great advice. Are you working on anything now? How can people find you? Uh, let's see. Well, I've got a out-of-date website. You can friend me on Facebook, please. You know, I'm on Facebook with a cute little cartoon. I mean, there's probably other Roberta Gregory's, but I've got like a little cartoon drawing of my face with a rainbow in the back, so I'll be easy to spot. Not to be a Seinfeld, but have you ever noticed that I never try to sell you Blue Apron on the podcast? Or that we do not disparage and bemoan trips to the post office in favor of Stamps.com? Well, it is because we have no advertisers. Zero. Producer Chris... Producer Ponyo and myself do this out of the goodness of our hearts, because we like it. If you would like to tip producer Chris Sutton, who dedicates hours to this series every week, please, 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 
please send your tip of $5, $10, who knows how much. That's your business via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That is hornet, like the insect, leg, like one of his appendages, at gmail.com. If you do this, we will read your name on the podcast. Isn't that exciting? We may have advertisers someday and we'll rant and rave about free sex toys and mattresses and blue apron and whatever. But in the meantime, thank you. We appreciate your support and I look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. That was Ponyo's voice. Don't be scared. Bye. A special shout out this week to Nadia Gomez and Shoshana Wechter. Thank you for supporting the podcast, my art, producer Chris, and producer Ponyo. I moderated a panel at the Queers and Comics conference called A Life in Panels, Queer Women in Memoir. At the very, very end, I asked the cartoonists assembled what advice they would give to young cartoonists. You'll hear the voices of Cal McHurst, Becky Hawkins, Leanne Franzen, A.K. Summers, and Sophie Yano. At the very, very end, I shout from afar that Linda Berry suggests you take a piece of paper from the garbage and draw on that, because it's already trash, so you can't do any worse. It's already garbage. Enjoy. Start small is my advice to young cartoonists, and listen to Sagittarian Matters, my <laughs> podcast. Uh, find a way to propel yourself forward, whether it's posting it online or, you know, sharing it with friends. Um, keep a notebook that's just for yourself because I keep hearing people say, I really want to write about this, but Tumblr would get mad at me. But like, if you want to write about it, just get a notebook that's for you. Put the worst stuff in it. I have this really nice book. Oh, this is more than one sentence. I'm sorry. Um, called like the absolute worst. No, seriously, the worst. And I will verbally vomit into it. Um, and, and it feels good. So Tumblr gets angry about vomiting. Tumblr gets angry about Really? Who is this Tumblr? Young people. All the young people. My advice is um, have an idea and go with it. Don't get caught up in trying to over-design or see to the end or, you know, imagine it being a huge, enormous, complicated thing. Go with the initial idea and just follow it. Um, there you go. Like, come for really do it yourself. So I just think, you know, don't worry about whether you're doing a graphic novel. Just do something that is really yourself, that's personal, that is you have real feeling for and put it out there. And if you share it out there, you're going to find other people who will encourage you and you'll get better as you go along. You don't need to be good to start with. You just put out stuff and if it's real, people will, will grab it and you'll gravitate to the people that love your stuff and you'll share it and you create community and that will help you just grow as you as you keep producing. Um, I would say if you're just starting out, don't use precious materials. <laughs> like, don't go and buy the most expensive archival paper and, like, the most expensive pen and then sit at your drafting table that you bought um, and go, like, all right, page one. You know, like... <laughs> Buy a crappy notebook, buy like a Uniball vision pen, they're waterproof, and uh, just draw in that, you know. Waterproof is important. Waterproof is important. These, these, they're like a dollar. When the says get a piece of paper out of the trash, because it's already trash, 
You're not going to do any worse than that. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for coming to our panel. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.